0: What's up, everyone? Welcome to episode forty-eight of the Noise Podcast, brought to you by Noise UK and sponsored by Stereo Brain Records. I am your host slash your boy Chris on joined as ever by a very good friend and Mister Cynical himself, Samuel Lewis. On our last day off before we go back to work, <laughs> how are you, man? I'm not too bad. I'm not too bad. I'm enjoying
1: the day off. I'm spending it doing a podcast with you and like playing Madden, which is about as good as a day could get for me, considering it's a Monday. So, I. It's I'm not looking forward to going back, but at least I'm ending the holiday on a high note, so to speak.
0: Mate, the return of reality when I logged into my emails this morning and saw 71. I was like, <laughs> yeah, man, this is what I've been hiding from for six weeks, and now that brutal reality checker just slapped me across the face like a Tyson book. <laughs> I'm, I'm exactly with you, mate, at the moment. Though. They start just piling
1: in a few days before with 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 the with work, aren't they? Just sort of just a quick reminder
0: and just can we have you fill this out before you start and can we have you look yeah. over this and it's like, fuck off. <laughs> I've had so many quick reminders that you might as well have just told me on a normal work day I've spent that long. I've spent that long being reminded of things. <laughs> Absolutely, man. It's uh, It's a stressful time approaching. This is like my one last bit of Get away, though, before the actual work brain sets back in. So perfect timing. It could not be better. Uh, we're a weekly mm-hmm. podcast sponsored by Cereo Brain Records, as I mentioned. We're available on YouTube, Apple Music, Spotify, basically, wherever you are getting your podcasts. Uh, wherever you are listening to us, if you give us a like and a subscription, that would be awesome. Sitting on something like 123 subscribers on YouTube now, which if you just said to me and Sam when we started this a year and a half ago, will you take 123 subscribers? We absolutely would. Uh, but if we can keep growing, that would be absolutely wicked. On our previous episode, uh, Click Drip were our breaking band. We had reviews on Diamond Construct's EP DCX2 and the brand new Oceans of Slumber self album, which I think is still playing, possibly. Do wow. Do you like that, Sam?
1: Yeah, well, at least it's draining out the, um, the emotional pain that I had to go through to listen
0: to that Biffy Clyro record. So. <laughs> uh, this week, as you would have noticed from our... For the title of this episode, sorry. Uh, we are back on our greatest metal album of all time chat with our number six entry being Metallica's The Black Album. We've also got a review on Cold Year's debut record Paradise as well. Before we get into the monstrous chat that I've got no date will be me and Sam talking about The Black Album, I uh, did you want to give a tribute to Riley Gale, who's the uh, vocalist of Pear who uh, very, very incredibly sadly passed away last week at the age of 34. Um, a cause of death I'm not aware of yet. I don't think it's actually been revealed, or if it has, I haven't seen it. Uh, Sam, you know, Pepper Trip actually gave me one of my favourite live music memories ever, which was on that incredible, incredible Metal Hammer put together, tour with Trivium headlining, Code Orange, Peritrip and Venom Prison, which to this day is like one of the great gig lineups I've ever been to. And I don't think Metal Hammer can be credited enough for their part in putting that together. Um, But I specifically remember you weren't familiar with Peritrip and I was like, it doesn't matter because I think you'll really enjoy them live. And I said, they're going to come on. They'll start with Soul Sacrifice. And I said, I just can't wait to see your face when they start because I know you're going to love this opening riff. They came out, mate. They played that opening riff to Soul like mate, and you just—it was one of the great moments of like me and you, <laughs> me and you just living up to how much we fucking love metal, man. Um, and Par- I've seen Periphery twice. I saw them obviously they're supporting Trivium, and then I saw them at Download as well last year. Uh, phenomenal both times. I was absolutely convinced. That Peritrip would be one of the forces driving heavy metal forward for the next decade. Um, Riley Gale, the vocalist, was a massive part of that. Unbelievable charisma, great aura on stage, really great voice, fit for thrash and heavy metal as well. Uh, he constantly spoke up for the right thing, constantly singing about him, which hates prejudice. And this is a tremendous loss, is it not?
1: yeah it really really is at such a young age and and the band's trajectory was was pointing upwards and like you mentioned there are terrific live band that were really um paving a way forward for both themselves and their genre as a whole um a really 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 talented group and, and and it is a absolute tragedy because you'd have seen them you'd have seen them live over the last couple of years of the show that we saw and the download show that you saw and you'd have thought that this is this is a band that could be in it for the long haul and seem to be really enjoying their their experiences as well. Um, obviously, with the circumstances are unrevealed um, at this stage. And I, I hope it's nothing too heartbreaking, to be honest. Although anything at this this sort of age is is, is disappointing, obviously. Um, but yeah, um, real 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 sadness attached to this uh, to, to lose to lose a, a really talented, really talented frontman part of a really talented band. Um, do you foresee Power trip continuing
0: i think there will if, if you put a gun to my head and i think that is probably because riley seems like the kind of character that would have insisted they do so uh but for someone to come in and ta- and take the mantle of riley uh that is a task uh nightmare logic Power Trip's last record i mean one of the first records i bought on vinyl uh really brilliant and really foreboding release that showed that there was still life in thrash metal yet, but there just needed to be a band as bold and as good as Peritrip to do something a little bit different with it. Uh, you have said before that you've already heard the five best thrash records that will ever be released, so you've got no interest in listening to them. Now, apart from Peritrip were the one band that you would, one new thrash band that you would, listen to with open arms am I correct there I seem to remember Uh, that conversation uh, yeah yeah
1: they're they're just the best one they're really really good they're really good
0: (laughs) they sounded
1: sounded unique and there was a there was a a certain swagger and I felt like um, a sense of glee and joy from the band as well Um, which I think is, is thrash metal at its best when it's it's not as serious and satanic all the time there's an element of joy because at the end of the day, I've always thought that thrash metal is almost like the the punk for metal fans in the way that it's yeah. supposed to be fast and energetic and enjoyable, rather than like too serious and and sort of dark orientated. So I, I always enjoyed that element to power metal because it felt like that embodied the spirit of what thrash always has been at its best. Um, so yeah, they're, they're definitely the um, the exception to my usual modern thrash
0: rule. <laughs> One of the great stories that I've seen in in the wake of this heartbreaking news was that I, I, I forgot the guy's name, but there was an employee of Fox News that was being into that was being in and talking about Riley, and he said that he played uh, either execution's acts or soul sacrifice I think during his show on Fox News and Riley issued him a cease and desist um because Obviously, I, I you know I've never really went into the full details, but I, I would assume Fox News his political stance doesn't quite align with paratroops. Um, to which then the guy said, "Me and Riley had a two-hour conversation where we quickly realised that it's perfectly okay for us to not agree on anything politically and still be great friends." And he gave a really, really touching tribute to Riley as uh, as a person. As so as has have several, several others, uh, lots of bands have come out and said what a tremendous person he was and um, what a talent he was, how great he was to be around. This, this is a tremendous, tremendous loss. And I did just want to take a quick moment to give a tribute to Riley, who for me was a part of absolutely one of the bands that would drive metal forward uh, for the next 10 years. Yes. Something, Sam... Much, much better and nicer for us to talk about. Uh, The sixth greatest metal album of all time, Sam, you have decided is uh, the Black Album by Metallica. Uh, Crazy to think that it's their fifth record. You know, sometimes I've spoke to people before that have said, I thought it was their first, you know, because of the size and and impact that it had. Um, Yeah. when When we talk about these albums that are on this list, I'd like to get some of the stats out of the way first. So, uh, it was their first record to reach Billboard number one. Uh, stayed yeah. there for four weeks. Uh, 16 times platinum. I mean, uh, eye watering statistics here that we're talking about a metal band achieving these kinds of feats. Uh, spent over 550 weeks on the album chart. I mean, that is absolutely ridiculous. Um, yeah. there are only the only other- album never to do so. They're only the fourth artist ever, I believe, to have done something similar. Um, Off the top of your head, could you guess who the others could possibly be? Um, The Eagles. That's a good shout. I mean, I'm not expecting you to know. I'm just curious if anything would come to your mind. Uh, Journey's Um, Journey's Greatest Hits is one of them. Um, Okay. Uh, Michael Jackson's Thriller. Surprisingly not. I was certain that would be one of them. Uh, It's Bob Marley's Legend. What a fucking okay. tremendous, tremendous album. And the other one, uh, obviously Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon.
1: Interesting. Okay. Uh, th- none of those are surprising, are they? No,
0: no. I mean, uh, I mean, Pink Dark Side of the Moon doesn't really do much for me personally, but Bob Marley's Legend, <laughs> I absolutely adore. Uh, the album, I think it's just genius beyond genius. Um, and you know what, Sam? Speaking of album sales, uh, the album is still selling today. It re entered mm-hmm. the Billboard chart three <laughs> weeks ago. Um, with that, there were approximately 6,000 units sold. That's combining streaming and physical. Phys- physical sales were just over 2,000. Now, let- let's before we get into anything else. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about that for a moment because this album is twenty nine years old and is re-entering the billboard chart. Do you see that as an issue at all
1: no it's it's um it's a symbol it's a symbol of how the songs have have lasted and transcended and my 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 position is if you want to Beat out Metallica, then write better than Metallica. It's not their fault. They're not. They're not touring. The, they're not touring the Black Album. <laughs> like they haven't. Re, they haven't re-released a remastered version. They're not. They play three or four songs off it every time they tour. They haven't toured for a year and a half. Like it's. It's not. It's not an issue in the slightest. It's just the songs are. This album is is the Nike tick of metal. It's. It, you know what I mean. Um, it's. It's. It's the. It's the archetypal successful metal album and it's not re-entering at five it's just re-entering i think long, longevity is a compliment and not an issue
0: i think there's two sides to this on with you i think this is I, I, i've got no problem with this but there is one side of the card that gives you know if there's an idea that someone's going out and choosing to buy a record in 2020 and then not choosing to buy the new Loathe or Cold Orange or Psylosis album, that is a bit of a shame on the one hand, isn't it? Because Metallica don't need your £10. Or obviously, in America, they don't need your $15 <laughs> at all. Uh, those bands arguably do much more. And uh, But just a reminder, mate, that new Psylosis album is really fucking good, isn't it? I listened to it again a, a few days ago. Cycle of Suffering is fucking so good. Um... With so with that, I, I can see where some people would be quite mythed about this in the sense of it's disappointing that if you if people are going out and buying albums, it's still it's not new bands and and there's probably not a person on earth listening to metal that hasn't listened to the Black Album yet. So why would they go out and buy? it? However, I think the opposite side of the card is that no. I don't think anyone that's going out and buying this album is, is someone who's listened to metal for 20 years and then say, oh, I'm going to go and get the Black Album today. I think that if you put a gun to my head, I believe these sales would have come from young kids at age 15, 25, who are just getting into Metallica. And there's nothing wrong with that at all, is there? No, there is, <laughs> there is no one that's going, I,
1: I don't think, buying the Black Album who would also buy Silo's on the same day. Um, There's just that that transition is too quick. Like you said, Metallica is the, this album is the ultimate first step on the metal rung of the ladder. It's the perfect introductory album for anyone that likes rock music and wants to try something a little bit harder. And then from there you can find everything else. I don't, I don't think an album sale for Metallica is $10 taken out of the pocket of loathe. I, I just, if Apart from me and you, find me a hardcore low fan who loves Metallica's Black Album. Like, I don't, there, aren't, there aren't too many. Um, yeah, so I think, actually, if Metallica's Black Album is selling, that's a symbol to me that people are still getting into metal every day. There, there's some kid every day in America, Australia, the UK, Europe, wherever, that is listening to the Enter salmon for the first time in their life and will become a lifelong metal fan. And then will eventually probably get round to Cylosis. And I think that's there is absolutely nothing wrong with that because there aren't many albums. Metal is not a, it's not a forgiving genre to enter yourself into. It takes a while. Um, there are not many albums that can immerse a listener and bring a listener into the idea of metal better than this one. Absolutely. And if if, if two thousand kids every week are buying the black album, then those two thousand kids are one of. Ten thousand at the next Bring Me The Horizon show like in five years, or the next Silosis show, or Lamb of God, or whatever collection of, of of metal that you want to put together. Because I started metal with this, really. Yeah, and I, and I know that thousands and millions of other people have as well. I don't think there's absolutely anything wrong with it in the slightest.
0: Well, no one's first favorite metal bands, Dying
1: Fetus, is he? Super- Not even the members of Dying Fetus, I imagine. <laughs>
0: But you see my point.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It just doesn't work. It does not work. Um, every conversation I've ever had with every metal fan ever, it started either with like Metallica, ACDC, or Pantera at a push. And then gone from there. You know, and then then those kids feed into like Bullet for Valentine or whatever's popular during the time that you grew up. But usually Metallica is like the top three to five options.
0: Any specific stats that you uh, want to throw our way in terms of how what we, to base this conversation around before we move on to a different topic regarding the record?
1: I think it's worth I think it's worth pointing out that Metallica were literally on tour for four years after this album came out. Um, there, there is there is no precedent um, that current that existed really for any metal band that Metallica that Metallica did from 1991 to 1994. They did four, I think, separate world tours under different names, um, like the Nowhere Else to Roam tour, um, the Keep On Touring tour, all this sort of stuff, um, just consistently for three or four years. And they literally went everywhere and then came back um, because what would happen as is, is the guy that was um, Cliff Bernstein who ran Electra Records kept saying was, we'd finish a tour and then like, oh, you're number one in Peru. You've got to go back to Peru. And they'd be like, oh, you you've recharted in France. So let's do another three shows in France. And that would just keep happening <laughs> every three months. So the band would get home and then there'd be another phone call being like, You'll never guess what? It's really popular in Melbourne. So we've booked you in a stadium. And that these level of touring that Metallica have done, it's really hard to overstate how rare it was for a metal band to play this long and be this popular. Because by comparing them, this is like Rolling Stones, YouTube, Bruce Springsteen, Madonna, Level of Touring, Michael Jackson, like Relentless, Playing, where they were literally on the road for like three years. And I think that's I think that's absolutely absolutely worth mentioning. And also, um, it charted at, and someone charted at number five in the UK um, in early 91 when it came out. And they were so successful that by the time they charted at the Billboard number one in... America, Lars Ulrich wasn't even bothered anymore because that is so successful so quickly. It would, it was just like that. And there's a great quote that Lars Ulrich says where he says, you think that they're going to tell you you're going to be number one in America and your whole world will ejaculate. And in actuality, um, I was standing in a hotel room and I got the fax through and it says you're number one. I was like, well, okay. It's just another fucking fax from the office. Fucking <laughs> and uh, like, that's how quickly things literally shifted on a dime for Metallica. And they were pretty successful anyway, but um, Enter Sandman came out in June, and the album came out in August. And Enter Sandman had built so much hype and the video came out in those month and a half that they were able to have a listening party at Madison Square Garden. They had a, again, metal band, um, a queue around the block for every major CD store and type selling store in the, in, in America on August the 12th, they had a midnight release party. Again, this is the fifth Metallica album, not Call of Duty. Um, nothing has ever happened like this ever before or since for a band that heavy ever like r- wake me up, wake me up when bring me the rise and are having a listening party at MSG and a midnight release party at Asda where there's thousands of people queuing outside. Let me know when that ever happens again. Um, that is that is even just a, modic- a modicum of the astonishing impact that the Black Album had, literally the minute it came out.
0: Speaking of, uh, you mentioned there of how things were for Metallica coming into the Black Album.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: As we come off the back end of "And Justice for All." this concept of the big four was in full cultural swing now. And Metallica certainly led that pack, but the term had become quite widespread throughout metal, hadn't it? Yeah. The the concept and and term of the big four was already being coined uh, in in several different areas of metal. Um, You've said to me before that... You felt that 1990 was the that was that Seattle show was that 89 or 9 or 1999 yeah 89. So you you felt you felt that and still still do feel that 1989 was their live peak. Um, just expand yep. on that for people who, who've never had a conversation with you about this. Um, so I think I think that was the, the coalescence
1: of their three most furious albums in ride the lightning master puppets and and injustice for all their their success hadn't bloated their live set at this point and they were still in the peak of their abilities both as performers so again you can say what people say what they like about Lars Ulrich as a drummer and that's tends to be based on whatever happened from 1993 onwards Um, But in 1988 and 1999, Lars Ulrich was a superb metal drummer. And the rest of the band were completely at their peak. So James Hetfield's voice for for that type of music. So it's a combination of James Hetfield's voice being perfect for the thrash stuff, which by 1989, they had three full albums of some of the greatest thrash metal songs and metal songs of all time. They were well-established enough to be able to mix everything together James Etfield's voice had grown up to the point where every time they did Seek and Destroy, it didn't sound as childlike as it did before. And because the latest stuff like Enter Sandman and Sad But True and things like that hadn't permeated, and nothing else matters, hadn't permeated the set list yet. As a pure Metallica fan, you, you could go and see Metallica in 1989 and you would get six to eight of the greatest thrash metal songs that wouldn't bump into each other. And it was just the, the perfect combination of them as a band there. Almost their athletic and performative peak was in 1989, even though they became much more successful later. 91 happened and they were doing huge tours, like three and a half hour shows at times and playing without support and doing all this mad stuff. But during that period of time, they were playing like shortened versions of songs. They were playing medleys. They were playing a lot more covers. Whereas in 1989, you would see 20 Metallica songs and 17 of those would be from Ride the Lightning, All, Master of Puppets and Unjustice for All, which even before you get to the Black Album, is the holy grail of thrash metal, really, in terms of four straight albums combined with each other. And I think that's the perfect thing, perfect situation for them. If you're a, if you're a Metallica fan like I am, where you hold the 80s stuff in such high
0: regard, then that is the perfect time to see them, I would have thought. Well, I actually do agree with what I've, with you from what I've seen, that 89 Metallica show. I've said this on the show before. I was sat there with you. not it? Yeah, it's amazing. I think, I can't remember whether it was, it might have been like two or three in the morning and we'd got back from drinking and got back to yours. Or it, it was like, I, I just came round on a random day when your parents were on, were on holiday or something like that. And we spent the night watching it. But regardless, uh, I was sat there and we, the, the opportunity arose. You were like, I could show you that fucking amazing Metallica show in 89. And I was like, please. Um, so as, the, as you put the DVD in, it gave like a, a quick highlight of the show before you press play. And yeah. one of the highlights was James just starting Blackened. And I was mm. like, fucking hell, his voice sounds amazing. And you said, oh, mate, you've seen fucking nothing yet. And as you press play, mate, honestly, the performance in that show, absolutely incredible. Um, is it Dyer's Eve into Master of Puppets, it, it puppets in that show uh, I believe um, no it's, it's um, To Live Is To Die
1: so to they live do, To Live Is To Die so James 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 comes out and plays the bass line on To Live Is To Die then Kirk Hammett and James come out and play the, the harmonies and it just perfectly sinks into Master of Puppets it's, it's still yeah. it's goosebumps it's the yeah. it's the greatest version of Master of Puppets I've ever seen without introduction it is just
0: wild I feel like, had Metallica carried on in that vein and never wrote the Black Album, never did the shift that, the musical shift that they did, which we'll obviously go into much greater uh, detail in later on. But I feel like, had they not have made this shift, they would have then gone on to write thrash metal versions of Load and Reload for the rest of their career. I don't feel like there was really anywhere left for them to go with the progressive slash thrash metal blueprint that they had uh, pretty much created and laid down from the period of 84 to 88. Uh, do you agree? Yeah,
1: I, I, I do, especially without Cliff Burton. I think, yeah. if Cliff Burton would, I think if Cliff Burton would not have died they might have just continued writing incredible thrash metal band uh, thrash metal albums for a couple more years, and they wouldn't have been as popular. But they'd have been one of those sort of bands where me and you were shaking people in smoking areas, being like, "You need to listen to Metallica; they're incredible. Yeah, they're the yeah. greatest band that nobody ever knows about." And they're sort of like slip into like a legendary sort of status that no one ever, you know what I mean? Because that, that one was a top ten single, so they'd have had some level of success through that. And I imagine that they would have probably written another version of that, or another song like that that would have probably permeated, but that would have kind of faded away into the into the masses, really, because there's nothing else has ever had the staying power of the Black Album. But it was it was a conscious decision, you know. It was a obviously obviously it was a conscious decision. But I mean, like the band the band had got bored of playing thrash metal. Like it, it wasn't a, it wasn't a and people think that oh they're sold out. They didn't sit around and say what's going to get us the best record. To, to to they didn't go for they didn't go for record sales. They were bored. They were sick of playing these songs live. They were sick of playing seven, eight, nine, ten minute songs. They wanted to do something different. And they they are the sort of songwriters that they write something and two years later they want to write something entirely different. Even if you look at the differences between Kill 'Em All to Ride the Lightning, Ride the Lightning to Master Puppets and Master Puppets Two, and just as for all well, there's, there's a shift either way in every single one. And the Black Album was another example of that. And then Load after that was another example of that. And then obviously St. Angle was another example of that. They, whatever you think about those albums, they change every time. They were always malleable. So I think without Cliff Burton, who would have probably been, I've read loads of conspiracy theories, who would have probably been punching the table for some like long extended stuff or a different, ch- like a continuation of the writing style. Or, or in 91, Metallica would have slowed down made the decision they made and Cliff Burton might have left yeah maybe. you know it might have just said you know this isn't for me this isn't the direction I want to go in I'm going to play jazz bass for he could have done what he wanted so it's that sort of situation so I don't think that would have worked for them I think they might have done one more thrash album and then like you said sort of either done like thrash versus load or slipped into this alternative reality where we see them like Slayer where they're legendary but nobody outside of <laughs> outside of the metal masses
0: know who slayer are i think they would quite possibly have retained arena status for the entirety of their career because of the quality oh, yeah. of the uh, uh, because of the quality of the output from 84 to 88 i think they would have still been undoubtedly the biggest thrash band in the world and Though Slayer, yes, we saw them in an arena and I saw them headlong the second stage on a download on their final run. But really, in 2015, Slayer were playing the 0 2 Academy. You know? Um... And you, you saw them, you, you were going to see them at the Civic? You, no, you did see them at the Civic, didn't you?
1: Yeah, I was going to see yeah. them at the NEC, then they were downgraded because they did off tickets.
0: Well, and and there it is. That that's, that, was that's...
1: that was 2007. That was the well, what we talk yeah. about as the glory era for New Age of American Heavy Metal and stuff. And it was mastered yeah.
0: on Antrivium and Slayer and I couldn't fill the stadium. Well, there it is. Um, yeah. you, you've just done, the, done me a fire there. You completely made my point. Um, so, what, But I think that Metallica would have retained Arena status solely because that you know they were the best, weren't they? They'd have still headline downloads.
1: Yeah. They'd have still headline download. Because yeah. Iron like, Maiden haven't sold more records than Metallica, even no. without the Black Album. No. But they're, they're still at the same sort of level, Do you know what I mean? If Metallica just went down that line, we'd still be watching Metallica headline download. It'd just
0: be... Just be different. I've just noticed that I made a typo here, and I put master of puppers <laughs> instead of ma- master of puppers. Um, so, <laughs> bakery. <laughs> We're not doing this again, like we did on
1: the fucking last episode <laughs> with death towers and bread. Sorry. <laughs> Welcome home, Schnauzerium.
0: <laughs> just pack it in already, all right? Just <laughs> stop it. I'm sorry, I, I can't help myself. Re loaf, no. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so. With the, when, when you get to the point of, and, and you, you alluded to it there, the, I think I've, I've read Kirk, Kirk Hammett say before that they were playing these, you know, like playing the total draft Justice Unjustice for All, and they could see all these long faces in the crowd. And I believe I've read as well, there was one point where they came off to the stage for the went on to do the encore, and one of the members said, we're never fucking playing that song ever again, Unjustice for All. I hate playing it now. How much do you think? It, where do you think the decision gets made specifically to for Metallica to be like, okay, there really is something that we we need to change now? Is it eighty eight? Is it eighty nine? Or is it a little bit after that point?
1: Well, they they started recording in nineteen ninety, which means that they had right they had songs written in late eighty nine, right? So. It, that And that writing process was not collaborative. It was Lars sitting next to James at Lars's house with James writing riffs and Lars offering suggestions. And that's how they've always always written stuff. Kirk Hammett would send off tapes and James Hetfield and Lars would listen to the tapes and integrate it into their ideas. But it was really a 2 man process. So I imagine that it would be Lars and James being like, we need to play simpler stuff. And then they would... In- what they would do is they would look through James's pile of riffs and put piece them together in the way that they decided and then just show the band. And that would be how that it'd be done. So I imagine the decision-making process They'd probably finish their tour in 89 with riffs already written. Cause James was just a riff writing machine. He would keep a tape tape measure uh, tape on him on all times and just write when he was just messing about or whatever. And then they would sit together and put these songs together. So by 1990, they already had ideas that were this, this style. And I've seen interviews with other people in other bands being like, oh, I heard tapes and it was like just riffs with James being like, not singing lyrics over it, but like singing, them, singing like a melody yeah. over the top without actual words. And they were thinking this is already, this is already really different. So I think, I think by 89, 90, it was, a, it was an active decision. They were always so ahead of the game. It was never Absolutely. like accidental. Like, oh shit, we should just change the songs. They went in. And it wasn't like they rewrote an album or something like that. They went in with that ideology. They went in recording those tunes and then obviously just spent like 18 months meticulously crafting them together.
0: I think that this album is metal's thriller. You know, everyone just seems to be born just aware and in full knowledge of its existence. It's one of those albums that everyone just seems to know about regardless of what kind of music you're into or what demographic you're sitting. It just seems like everyone knows if it's existed, whether they listen to Metallica or not. I saw Metallica headline leads in 2015, a festival that by that point and even more, even more certainly now, you wouldn't necessarily associate with Metallica. And that that was the reason why I, that and because me and you had started becoming really really close friends, that was the reason why I decided to get into them. I was like, right, well, me and someone becoming like bros, and he's massive on Metallica and the headlining leads, and I'm going to be there, uh, bringing the horizon subheadlining. So I should get into Metallica. And the people I went with wasn't weren't particularly massive on Metallica, but we were all in agreement that there was no way that we were missing them, regardless. And this was like the second the lineup was announced and we all knew we were going, I hadn't even started listening to Metallica to say, oh, well, I really want to see these because I love them. But we'd all just decided, well, we're not missing Metallica because they're one of those bands that I could just tick off and say, oh, yeah, I've seen Metallica. Similar for me, uh, I, I, I'm not absolutely massive on the Killers, but the Headline V Festival, I was there. I made sure I saw them just so I could tick them off the list. And I'm not trying to compare Metallica and the Killers there, by the way. I know I'm what you just, mean, though. I know what you mean. I mean, in the sense of they had hit such, they, Metallica are such status that we decided there's no way we're missing them if they're playing a festival that we're at. And obviously, I think the Black Album, more than any other record, is, is the reason for that because of the absolute explosion that you were talking about where they would get called at four in the morning and be like, hey, you're number one in fucking Peru. Did you know you've got to come and tour here now? And just this absolute nonstop implosion that Metallica had become. Um, Obviously, the record would take their sound away from being centered around, uh, you know, really baffling, dexterous uh, musicality. And instead, obviously, it would just be more this more fine tuned, in your face, white knuckle metal band. A lot of that, Sam, is to do with their relationship with uh, producer Bob Rock Mm -hmm. during the recording process. Of this record. That was quite a tumultuous one. Now, obviously, because of your, not, your further knowledge of the background of Metallica and the books you've read, the documentaries you've watched as well, then you've got more knowledge on this concept than me. Uh, just how rough was that relationship? Because I, I've, seen, I've seen videos and I've seen bits out of a year and a half in the life of Metallica where it doesn't look great. <laughs> it was very tense pretty much the entire way. And it
1: was really long. So it got to the point where Bob Rock actually, he later reneged on this, but they both swore apparently that they would never work with each other again after this this album. I read this. Yeah. Um, so it got to that point when (laughs) regardless of the success, they were still like, nah, fuck this. Um, but yeah, it was so tense because, um, they hired Bob Rock to help them shift their sound, but also were unwilling really to let Bob Rock shift their sound. Um, So it was a tough conflict, or or as more accurately, unwilling to let Bob Rock shift their sound as long as it was decisions that were completely agreed to by Lars and James. Yeah. And Bob Rock was not a man who was going to just flick buttons and listen to them, because he felt, rightly so, that they hired him because they wanted to sound different. They wanted to sound a particular way, and they had to listen to him to sound that way. And it began tense the minute like the minute they met each other it was tense Bob Rock telling Lars Ulrich that they've never been they've never captured their live energy on record yeah I
0: love um, that. I love was that. was
1: incredible like Lars Ulrich was like who the fuck is this <laughs> um <laughs> um but the thing is it's that bravery um that actually eventually earned his 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 respect for Metallica who ripped him relentlessly like, took the piss out of him, like, the same way they did with Jason Newstead, who, I imagine Jason Newstead would be fucking relieved when Bob Rock turned up. No one's focusing on me for once. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so their relationship was built on tension. And what, what would happen as well is that Bob Rock would stay with James Hetfield during the day, who preferred to work in the day. And Lars Ulrich would turn up at night, who preferred to work in the night. And Bob Rock would just never get to leave. So he would work with work with James from, like, 12 till 5 on, like, riffs and stuff. And James was obsessive with riffs, obviously. He'd he'd, he'd have, like, one in each um, speak and one down in the middle, and then would need to do take after take after take after take to make sure it was perfect. And then he'd fuck off and he'd think, thank God. And then Lars Ulrich could turn up at fucking <laughs> 7, 8, 9 at night and want to play fucking 150 takes because the snare drum's slightly out of tune. And Bob Rock would not have gone home. <laughs> so was a combination of the two's obsessive relationship with the music and bob rock just being there all the time and essentially rock also knew that he had to talk james into a lot of stuff um Loz was on was was pretty much on board apart from the, he's, he's still being obnoxious but he was relatively on board with a lot of the changes because they were mostly his idea but the changes that really had to kick in that were difficult was persuading james to sing a bit more write more open-hearted lyrics which is also a problem for james hetfield to do and convert a song that james hetfield written for himself to play for his girlfriend and actually put that on the album which was nothing else matters so all of these things together literally required bob rock to almost drag james and a lot of the other members of the band kicking and screaming into the new into the new decade without which they might not have survived um because we talk about the shift of the sound, and um, there was a great quote from um, Unjustice for All, a history of Metallica that I was reading earlier today is that grunge was the grim reaper for metal, but the Black Album showed bands how to survive its appearance, which I thought was um, a yeah, nice way like of putting it. I like because that. Metallica showed how to adapt to grunge while retaining their own identity. Now, it was not going to be popular with everybody, and it wasn't. Um again that book starts off with a great quote, which was Metallica uh, Metallica's Black Arm is their best, worst, best produced, worst produced, um, most intelligent and least intelligent album they've ever put together. Yeah. Um, because those are the arguments. Right. There's me and you think it's an incredible achievement, and there are other people that are like, Oh, they've sold out, they've given up, it's not even interested, it's slow, it's dull. But this was this has been this is like metal titanium, this has just survived. Because of Bob Rock and because of the tension that they built together, and Metallica has always recorded in tension. Like if you watch some kind of monster in 2003 yeah, when they're fighting yeah. with each other, Load was now different. Obviously, it was just a little bit more relaxed because they were really successful at that point and they were basking in the glow of the Black Album still. Um, and Justice for All was tense because they hated Jason and everything. They've always worked in conflict. Bob Rock just managed to really um, build a diamond out of that heat and conflict and compression and really sort of bring all this out, Um, which he did obviously incredibly successfully and painstakingly.
0: From the research that I've done, he was originally hired just to do the mixing, wasn't he? Then he kind of like talked himself into the producer's role. Now, I, I don't know of the actual ins and outs of the relationship between Metallica and Fleming Rasmussen, but they couldn't have recorded this album with him, could they?
1: No. No. They they did they did pay him for a month to stay on holiday just in case they needed him, though. Right. Um, okay. Because they, they they recorded the first time they recorded, they just before they recorded with the producer called Mike Clink. And then within like weeks they were like, fuck this guy. <laughs> and called Fleming Remusen back and were like, please, please, please. Which is why it got recorded so quickly, which is why the bass debacle happened um but anyway they said to Fleming look we're gonna making another risky choice we're gonna go with Bob Rock um but will you just go on holiday in Denmark and if we need you after two weeks we'll call you so that's what they did they paid him a full salary and he just went on holiday amazing and then after the month he didn't get a call so he was just like oh they, they must be they must be doing all right with um, with Bob and then and just went on so they were still they weren't like dead set yet it took a very long time for them to be like oh this is the guy um, but yeah, Bob Rock did talk himself into it. I think, I think James and Lars have always seen themselves as producers. Um, but really, they absolutely needed somebody doing the actual more technical stuff, sitting down and making the decisions. Because Bob Rock's resume um, prior to Metallica was like Motley Crue and Bon Jovi, yeah. and you can listen to Motley Crue and Bon Jovi now. They still still sound great on the radio, man. Yeah, they do. And yeah. like he he he. He perfected that mid to late eighties big sound, that sonic production, and obviously he paid massive dividends
0: with the Black Album. There's a ser- There was a series called uh, Classic Albums. To which, of course, they did an episode on the Black Album. Literally thirty seconds in, uh, James Hetfield is referring to the Black Album almost as its own entity. Uh, if I remember correctly, he says he doesn't even know if he called it Metallica, it's just the black album. You know, it, it, it's mm. it's it took on a life of its own, it is it's got its own identity. Um, I think that's actually quite apt because Metallica would never encapsulate their ability to cross over into other audiences as well as they did on the black album ever again. Um, albums that they released after would have moments of it, like a uh, fuel on reload. Uh, that's one of the tracks that would uh, definitely had and did uh, cross over. But they never did it again to the extent and the amount of uh, times they did it with writing songs on the Black Album. Um, so if we are going to refer to the Black Album almost, almost as like, it's a band and it's a, a product in itself, do you think that's the right thing to do? Is that fair or do you think this is still absolutely like a, a byproduct of Metallica, and to try and try and alienate it as like its own product because of its size and its nature is is stupid. I'm not saying you'd be calling no. James Hetfield stupid, but the no, idea.
1: no, I, I I understand, I understand because I would see it as the birth of Christ for the band. So right. you know, here there's like BC and AD. Yeah, I see what you mean. There's, yeah, there's, there's before the black album, after the black album, and the black album was just a period unto itself. I, I think that's fair because they were a thrash band until the black album, and then they were absolutely not after the black album. The black album sits in the middle as this big bang for them, like where everything just shifted into something else afterwards. Um. Yeah, I I do I do see it. The black album, the period that followed the black album, so from 1991 to 1994. Um, I do see it as like a separate peak for the band almost or at the very least the top of the mountain for that band in the way that we talk about actors and film stars and footballers and sports athletes where it's like this player was great up until here but this period here from like 2009 to 2013 they're amazing and then they slip back down that's what it is for Metallica it, it did take on a life of its own and that period of time was never repeated again they never toured like they did on the black album ever again they never recorded an album like they did on the black album ever again they would they never just put the they, they, they did elements of it but they never really spent 18 months on an album ever in their lives like they did on on the black album so i definitely see it as almost a force unto itself it's still under the umbrella of metallica but it is absolutely its own thing in, com- in, in contrast to everything that followed it and everything that came before it. It is, yeah, I think it is very fair to say that it is almost on its own, its own entity,
0: as James puts it. So, as we get into the record, mate, of course, it opens with Enter Sandman, which, does. similar to how we're saying that this album's like Metal's Thriller, Enter Sandman is like Metal's Mr. Brightside. It's like... It's like one of those songs that, like you, you, you seem to just be born knowing the lyrics. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. you know, Mister Brightside. Like I think you could put like a two-year-old and they'd probably start singing on to Mister Brightside. You just somehow you, you hear the song enough, you just know the lyrics. And I think that is absolutely what Enter Sandman is. Like I knew, I knew every lyric to Enter Sandman before I even got into the Metallica because it's just so universally well-known. Mate, the, the way this song and, obviously, this album comes out of the speakers, even today, absolutely mind-blowing. It's, it's incredible.
1: I think Enter Sandman is the perfect opener in the way that it, it perfectly does, it perfectly encapsulates the shift that Metallica has made pretty much within the first couple of minutes um, because it starts off with um, that clean riff yeah that hypnotic sort of simplistic riff beautifully faded well. in. Yeah, incredibly faded in and then the first real success of Bob Rock's um production happens within the first 10 seconds when you hear the drums. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because I I will fight anyone who disagrees with this is the greatest drum sound ever. Yeah, it is. The the greatest drum sound and I and I mean on any record for its time what it sounds like it's still drums. this is 20 years old has not been remastered and still just pummels out of the speaker that first snare hit with the riff yeah. the way that it slowly builds up this tension um it still maintains an element the way that it builds up the way that the riff evolves an element of metallica's thrash level intricacy on enter sandman that the way that it slowly builds up it spends a minute getting to the main riff it's like yeah. oh this is still retains that element but then it kicks into that riff you know the 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 main riff on enter sandman the One of the great all-time metal riffs ever. Yeah, Um, You could make a case it's the greatest. Um, I don't know where I'd sit on that, but you've got absolutely... It's one of the top three to five, at the very least, whatever order you want to put them in. It was actually voted a Kerrang! poll as the greatest metal song ever by a Kerrang! poll, I might add, um, which shows its transcendence. Um, And then, obviously, it's also not just their most memorable riff, their their biggest-selling chorus... Yeah, it and it, it 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 perfectly parallels between the heaviness, the darkness of the sound because it and the darkness of the lyrics. It's not a pleasant song, you know, about dark nightmares and stuff like that. It's all dark in content, coupled with this unmistakably poisonously catchy riff and chorus section, and that and that's what became became, it so, became so popular because it's essentially a hard rock song posing as a metal song really like at its absolute peak it's verse chorus first chorus one main riff big guitar solo it's you know it's, it's a hard rock song but the darkness of the riff the way that the riff kind of sounds this snaky almost mysterious type sound the clean guitar over the top the creepiness of james hetfield's midsection with the prayers and all that sort of stuff just about flip the needle in, in in the metal direction enough for it to have this crossover appeal and it's it, that's why it, obviously that's why it became so successful because it, it honestly does i think perfectly sits in both camps between a heavy metal song and a, and a hard rock song and combines one of the all-time great riffs in terms of the way that it's produced the efficiency of the writing there's not a, there's not a second that's wasted here and the way that it's entirely built on the riff but also in James Hetfield's perfect style, it's different versions of the riff. Like it's like he reconstructs the riff um, backwards and forwards at various points of the song to keep it interesting, but also maintain the same themes and ideas. It is the archetypal of heavy metal song. And, and I've always, we've always had this conversation, but if you were to sit someone down and be like, oh, I'd like you to start getting into metal, I think you should, this would have to be your first, first point have to be. This is absolutely. the this is the song. This is the song you would start with. If I if I had like a teenage son who likes a bit of ACDC or whatever, and I'm like, all right, okay, let's start going down the metal alleyway. I'm starting with this. Absolutely. Because then from this he's he's off. He'll follow his own little path. But this this is
0: absolutely where you begin. And has that always been one of the centrepieces live? Since mm-hmm. since they're it. I mean, I've only ever seen Metallica finish on Enter Sandman. I've seen them th- four times, mm-hmm. th- four. Yeah, I think I've seen them four times. It's four or three. Regardless, every time the finish on Enter Sandman, I remember it, I remember Leeds like it was yesterday. The classic camera zooms in on uh, James's hands as he's doing mm-hmm. the uh, rock uh, the devil horns as they're about to go into the final section, like, boom, and then uh, literally massive explosion, uh, huge, like, Metallica-like b- like uh, beach balls explode at the stage, mm. go everywhere, amazing. Um, similar when we saw them at uh, Man- uh, Manchester City's Etihad Stadium, huge explosion behind them as they did the boom. Like, seeing Enter Sandman live, everyone, that, everyone just burns the lyrics through their lungs that chorus is massively infectious goosebumps on my neck thinking about it mate that's what this song does unbelievable
1: yeah and it it just summer it summarizes their immediate size and appeal um because when they when they when they used to open with it in 91 as well it's what begins their live show and all that sort of stuff and immediately gets the crowd sort of massively excited and into it and it, 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 it's perfect It's both perfectly the archetypal opener and and, and finisher, really. And uh, I, I, I don't think Metallica could, could conceivably play it twice a night, and I don't think many people would complain. No. Um, but yeah, it, it's it's just a it's a symbol of their of their of their success. It, it's the perfect heavy metal rock song. It is. It, it's it's transcended its own genre. It's transcended, like you said, it's transcended the band even, and salmon it's its own thing. almost as as just as the black album is and it is the perfect concoction of a fucking great riff great production and corporate level um excellent hook and chorus that metallica absolutely mastered here and with meticulous quality because if that recorded into sandman with Fleming Remus, it wouldn't have sounded as big or as bold or as brash. It wouldn't have jumped out the speaker, and it wouldn't have sounded as great on the radio. Which means it wouldn't have got the radio airplays. Which means it wouldn't have, you know, vaulted the band to the success that they had later. But it's it's the absolute perfect encapsulation of Metallica's shift and their most successful song immediately, and on the strength of Enter Sandman alone. um, this album sold millions of records just on that single. That's how, that's how strong and powerful it was. It's just so big. It's just so big. The riff is huge. The drums are huge. The chorus is massive. The solo is terrific. It, it's perfect. Like it, as, a, as a rock song, it is just perfect from start
0: to finish. Two examples of popular culture that I will give to round off just the, the, how important and huge Enter Sandman was before we move on to uh, the next track. Uh, there's a wrestler uh, in ECW called The Sandman. Uh, and in the late 90s, obviously ECW uh, was obviously known as X- Extreme Championship Wrestling, mega violent organisation. And The Sandman was like this. Uh, he was, his character was like the, the working class rough who would just turn up, beat the shit out of people, go home, he would walk out eat through the crowd uh, and there is videos of Enter Sandman being, obviously, his theme tune. Now, Paul Heyman, who was the owner of ECW, was crafty as fuck and figured out a way that he could play Enter Sandman without having to pay Metallica or any uh, licensing fees because ECW wasn't a particularly uh, rich organisation. So they couldn't, put, they couldn't have afforded to pay Metallica the, the money that they would have wanted. To to play into Sandman, regardless they did it, and I tell you what, mate. If I ever because a lot of the YouTube videos have been taken down now. I'm speaking it when I saw it years ago. If I ever got the chance to show you uh, the Sandman uh, ring entrance with this song playing, mate, I, I I think you would actually ejaculate right next to me. Uh, walks out <laughs> with a beer, walks out with a beer can in his hand and a fag in his mouth, right, and the crowd are singing along to the song as he's walking through the crowd, and this, mate unbelievable imagery so fucking cool and then also if i remember correctly uh enter sandman was a theme song for a call of duty call of duty yeah one of the greatest phenomenon of not just gaming of 21st century life still enter sandman was selected as the theme song for it uh or at least the advertisement theme song anyway i'm 90 percent certain it was enter sandman um or oh, it was at least definitely a Metallica song, but I'm fairly certain it was Enter Sandman. Regardless, that just shows the, the cultural significance of this four minutes.
1: Yeah, I I I, I remember um, watching um, Ball, Chicago Bulls playoff games early in the lockdown, um, around the time that the documentary came out, and there's one about Game Five, 1993, and it was Metallica's Enter Sandman was the promo music. And it was Michael Jordan as the New York Knicks nightmare. That was the promo. My God. And it's like Michael Jordan was like the main character in this idea that he was haunting the Knicks in the same way that the, the nightmares were haunting the child at the end of Sandman video.
0: Awesome. But it
1: was Michael Jordan highlights with Metallica in the background. So I just lost my shit on my own for five and a half minutes. Like Amazing.
0: Amazing. Um,
1: but like that was, that's American sports fans in 1993, two year and a half years after the album came out. Like where those two were being associated with each other. And, and that alone should, should, should really should really show how big this song was. And like I said, I'm going to repeat this again. Came out, single came out in June. Album came out in August. Album listening party was at MSG. Like <laughs> that went from one of a, 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 a thrash album with a, a top 10 hit single in one to two months later filling Madison Square Garden for fans just to listen to their music. For the new album that that happened in six weeks. Like, uh, that is, it's a transcendent song, absolutely transcendent song.
0: Sam, sad but true. Fuck me. In terms of production, one of the heaviest songs I've ever heard, without doubt. You you alluded to it. The sound of Lars' snare drum on this record is, is unlike anything I've ever heard but even more specifically on this song. I don't think it's ever been replic- replicated. And also, hilarious, uh, some, uh, some people would call a sellouts for this, for this album. This is arguably the heaviest song they've written to this date yeah. in, for me. I completely agree. I'm deliberately
1: down-tuned and slow and methodical. And yeah, Lars' snare is a, it's a Thor's hammer, isn't it, on, the, on, this, on this song. And it's perfectly suited to take advantage of that. Like the way that it builds up with the massive hi-hat sounds and the big yeah. snare and that pause to hear the, the, that, that snare kick in for that massive riff. And again, it's heavy, but it's groovy as fuck, man. Oh, and man. it's so catchy. And then on top of that is James's really, like, hypnotic-sounding lyrics. that have, yeah. like, an Eastern flavour. I think, like a bueno, bueno, sort of like a sort of Asian type sound that we've got, and it perfectly combines together once again. Obviously, again, massively mixed, beautifully produced, huge sounding, dark, heavy, but a fucking great chorus, and just a powerful, head-banging stomp of a song. And at least, if you were listening to this as a thrash metal fan, thinking, oh, they've slowed down, they haven't got any lighter, you know, like, this is, this is, their, this is like you said, this is one of their heavier songs. It's just innately catchy. And this is, again, where they managed to perfectly sit on the platform between heaviness and hook. And there's, there's no
0: one that has done it better than these opening two songs here. It's just extraordinary. I think this song is the one that points most to how important Bob Rock was to this album. As, obviously, originally... The song was a much was much quicker, and I think in the hands of Fleming Rasmussen, I, I, I think the quick version of this song makes it to tape. I don't, yeah. I, I don't think he slows this down like Bob Rock insisted that the, they basically down tune and slow the song down um, really quite drastically. I'm assuming you've seen the video where the original version of Sad But True is playing in the background, and they're listening to it, and James is like yeah, see, this this just feels fucking weird, doesn't it? It doesn't sound right at all. I'm assuming you've seen that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I I think that version makes it a tape if Bob Rock isn't the producer. Yeah, very much so. Um, Fleming Remusim was not giving anywhere near
1: the same sort of tips and stuff that Bob Rock was giving on the direction of the music. Fleming would just let them record and just off a little bit and just touch it up and you know what i mean and he was the great producer for their three albums proceeded because of that that they could explore their musical freedom but bob rock was not built like that at all and if he, if he thought if he thought that there was a way to get this across where it would sound better and and, and more and more impactful he was absolutely not going to rest on these laurels and and let the band get away with it because it is perfectly perfectly suited as this down tuned massive 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 song and bob rock nailed it mate there's no other way to do it that and that and the production on it to really bring that song out it's just extraordinary um because this is just, it's perfectly mixed and mastered and put together and it's the perfect follow-up song to enter sandman to remind listeners that this is still a monstrously heavy metal 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 band
0: a great point for Sad But True is our mutual best friend, Leon. He loves Sad But True. He's got, he doesn't like Metallica, but he loves Sad But True. And, and Leon's a fan of like really heavy, hardcore, metalcore, mm-hmm. deathcore. And he loves Sad But True because of how heavy and groovy it is. That's a tremendous point to make for how good this song is. When Metallica, when Metallica are doing songs that Leon likes, that's when you know that it's a fucking great uh, traversal song. Yeah, absolutely. It's transcended
1: again, hasn't it? And there's four or five songs on this album that do that, I think. Um, We'll get to those obviously in order, but it's these two uh, the first two. And then I would talk about Nothing Else Matters and Wherever I May Roam. Yeah. Are just the, the four just transcendent metal songs that combine Metallica's skill for melody and ability to layer these songs with massive groove and depth and power. It's perfect, perfect combination
0: again on Sabre True. Mate, I love how they're there. Um, it's done, it's done the right, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, you know, they weren't going for this, but it's for me. It's probably the closest thing on the record to Justice era. Uh, that's not what they were going for, but I think it's probably the thing you could probably point your finger to and say it's a cloud it's most reminiscent of. Uh, but it's and poignant, and it's in a rush. It's fucking great heavy metal. And I adore how Jason is in the mix, not only on this album, but specifically on this song and in the bridge section, which is a nice nod after the shit he went through on Unjustice, would you not say? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And bass is hugely important to... <laughs>
1: A great record. And Bob, Bob Rockman, managed to summarise that beautifully. I, I, I like Howly Than There as well. It was going to be the original single. The original oh, first it? single. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Lars was banging on the table for it. He was convinced this would be the big one. But again, Bob Rock was like, no. <laughs> uh, it needs to be into Sandman. It needs to be into Sandman. Like, again, if this was just a, a normal Metallica production, Sad But True's faster. The mix isn't as good. And Howly Than There is the first single. This sells maybe what two million records. It's a different world. Yeah. Um, so off. again, it's it's crazy, like crazy. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it is it is it's a great riff. Um again, the example of, of James Hetfield's voice and melody. And I think his voice just sounds superb on this. And they 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 really did push James to get the best out of his voice again and again and again, where there is no There is rarely any actually complete takes of vocals on this album. It's all little snippets of stuff, like a perfect sentence here with the best way he said the word here. And it's just pieced together like a jigsaw puzzle, which crazily still sounds great the way that it's been pieced together. We don't actually, you can't tell, Um, but also shows how meticulous it was. And again, this is a great pounding hard rock song. With a great riff on it, and that has become the pattern that the, this 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 band followed throughout this album to huge success. Uh,
0: James's greatest ever vocal performance on Unforgiven, Sam. I, I, I mean, I, I, love I, I love him on Bleed. i I love him on Bleeding Me, Outlaw Torn, Fighter to Black as well. But I, I think for me, his best ever vocal performance is on Unforgiven. He is absolutely fucking brilliant on that song.
1: Yeah, it depends on what version of James you really, really are into, isn't it? As personal preference at that point. I think it's his, it's his most difficult, the, the highest degree of difficulty is on Unforgiven. Because he literally, he has to actually croon, yeah. like properly sing on on the Unforgiven um, verses. Uh, sorry, the choruses. And then go rotate between that and his more sort of gruff vocals on the on the heavier verses and stuff. I always found it was interesting because it's essentially fights back in reverse where the chorus is the soft part and the, the verse is the heavy bit. They've sort of just switched it around a little bit. Um, But again, this was a song that Metallica fans struggled to swallow, but fans who flocked to the album adored. Yeah. This was a massive hit single for them and something that became a live staple, their entire black album tour because of that. You know, it's, it's essentially a Bon Jovi-esque ballad yeah. with with James Hetfield singing and just features just enough of that classic Metallica sort of dexterity in the guitars to sort of keep it interesting. I'll admit when I first listened to this, it's one of my least favourite Metallica songs on this album, this was. Um, but as I've aged, I've matured a little bit and I I, I enjoy it. I enjoy it now, um, much greater on. But it is, again, huge... The riffs are massive in between, and I also think this is one of Kirk Hammett's most underrated guitar solos. The guitar yes, solo on yes, this.
0: I've got a whole he's uh, yeah, just I, amazing. I've got a bullet. I've got a whole bullet point on this solo. I fucking love his solo on this. Have mate. you seen? Oh, have you God. seen
1: the clip where he's right? He's playing this solo in the studio in a year and a half. Um, oh. If you haven't, they they, they they piss him off.
0: Yeah, yeah. Constantly. I was good. I was going to mention this. Yeah, yeah. But obviously, you've got greater knowledge to carry on. Um, well, we'll revert back to you in a moment to get to your bullet punks I want to hear your thoughts
1: on it as well but they essentially um Bob Rock was like this can be you know your best solo or whatever and they're really like pushing him and saying that's not good enough and whatever and Jason Newsted was talking about it and he was like you can see him getting worked up and worked up and worked up and like that's the, the, type that you want is the type where he's so angry and so pissed off and so annoyed that you've questioned his ability that he's really fucking going at the guitar. And you can hear that frustration and anger on the solo here. Cause it's not dexterous really until the end bits. It's very massive, massive angry notes and this huge power and stomp, um, almost guns and roses style. Um, with those massive, massive notes. Um, and it is just, it's just brilliant. Isn't it just
0: superb. well, Again, I think Unforgiven is, yet again, we're mentioning the importance of Bob Rock. You know, you watch a year and a half in the life of, and he's forcing James to work over and over and over on his vocal melodies and, and his and his lyrical pretenses. And then that, that moment with Kerr is, I, I love that because, Their their dedication to the craft is unlike anything else. Now, of course, every band goes into the studio and they want to write a great record. No one goes into the studio to write a bad album. And everyone obviously wants to put as much effort as they possibly can to to get the best end product that is possible. But the way Metallica just bang on and hone in over the smallest, smallest modicum of issues... And they will not they will not allow that small little crumb to be a part of their own product. I think that forty five second clip of Kirk being like really ridden and like this ain't good enough, you're better than this." I think theoretically that could sum up Metallica as a band without anything else. just this group of absolute like psychotic like I would see Mm -hmm. obsessed individuals, obsessed with what they foresee as perfection. And I think, you know, I think come the end of this chat, we're going to have said Bob Rock that many times that someone could make a video of us, just how many times we could say his name. But again, he's massively important to this. Mm -hmm. Because again, uh, I'll reiterate a point I made earlier. I think Rasmussen probably takes uh, Kirk's fifth take. You know, and I, I feel like I'm not discrediting. It just discred- takes the one that the band's happy with. Well, yeah, look, I'm, it sounds like I'm discrediting his ability as a producer. He's a fantastic producer, and his job on Master of Puppets, I'm sure we'll get to that at some point in this list. But, I mean, his job on Master of Puppets, phenomenal. Uh, job on Justice for All, phenomenal. But, f- for me, the obsession over, no, this wasn't your, this, this. isn't your best, and this won't, this won't uh, service the song, great yet you need to do it again and again and again i think that 45 second segment sums up metallica as a band these obsessives uh for perfection absolutely absolutely if you if
1: you look across any any um successful business uh athlete film star there has to be an element of obsession um for them to really 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 face those successes Um, and metallica absolutely built that way to their own to their own degradation to the point where they wore each other out and had to take these massive sort of gaps in between um but if you're really committed to your craft and your art then you have to be absolutely absolutely obsessed with it absolutely obsessed with it I remember, this, I remember this interview with, with Kobe Bryant when he came into the league and he used to wake up at like three or four in the morning to go to the gym before practice and all this sort of stuff. And, the, and this interview was like, when did you realise you worked harder than everybody else? He's like, well, until I got into the league, I didn't realise what I was doing was work. Right, yeah. Because his mentality was what, I'm a basketball player, this is what I'm supposed to do. He didn't even see that what he was doing as a chore. And the, parallel with Metallica, they never, they never saw this process as anything other than what it had to be. There was no shortcuts, no corners. This is the best way to get the best music. We are not going to settle for anything less. And that's always the way they were. And Kirk Hammett spoke about this as well. He said, well, if you make a mistake, you've got to live with that for like two, three years on tour. When, when you're plugging the album and stuff. Yeah, or yeah, yeah. You can't just forget about it. Like you're talking about, you've been asked questions all the time. It's going to stick in your mind. And you want to make sure this is absolutely perfect. Absolutely perfect. And especially when you're in a band where James Hetfield is spending hours piecing together like riffs and bits of his vocals, and then Lars or Ricky spending like hours because the snare sounds slightly out and he's unhappy with it. Like this is not a band for the lighthearted and that this is just the way that they worked. And that could also point to their back catalogue I be like, this has worked for us. This is the way that we're going to do this. But you're right. The, the obsession and neurosis of this band is a driving force of their absolutely huge success. And if you look across any other any other band, the ones, the bands that spend the most time on their music and really put it all together are often the ones that are more consistently successful. Same with anything, really.
0: Wherever I may roam, Sam closes is it. at this absolutely absurd five-song start to an album. Um, it's yes. my favourite track on the album. And... I I love I love the first minute and a half of this. Mate, Lars is drumming on this song. Those opening snare shots as the lead riff comes in. Fucking hell. It sound like a machine gun. Yeah, absolutely. I, I I love the tempo shift.
1: And um that that massive like film score type sound at the start. Yeah. Um before before the, the main riff really kicks in. Yeah. Beautiful. And then that that the sound of that bass Ah, yeah, as the, as the yeah. riff kicks in. It sounds percussive, but it's actually not. It's like this like Asian bass thing that they use. It's hard to explain, but essentially Jason News said just flicks the top notes of this thing and it makes this sound like he's hitting an anvil. Um and that combined together gives it like this beautifully eastern feel. Again, same as sort of sad but true, where it's like almost mysterious and, and almost magical with all the different instruments that are going on, and then kicks into this absolutely brilliant riff. Just a stomping, powerful, massive riff. And then obviously it's, it's again with a great melody and the great chorus. It's, a, it's perfect. Again, it's just a perfect heavy metal rock song. It's, it's powerful and engaging and compelling and hook-liding hook and catchy, but also heavy and dark. And the riffs are snaking in between what's going on. The solo is terrific. The drums are absolutely massive. It's 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 about as high a watermark as any heavy metal song can 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 reach, as like like with the other three incredible songs that precede it on this album.
0: There are moments on the black album where the drums are genuinely the loudest part of the song, which Yes, you know, and th- there's this running joke, isn't there, about like Lars and James almost like this kind of cat burglars sneaking onto the desk when no one's looking and lifting their volume up a bit. But I think where they sit in the mix so loudly is it works perfectly for the sound they were chasing, is it, doesn't it? It yeah, ab- benefits absolutely. Them. It benefits them to no end. More so than anything else on this song, the way Lars sounds. On wherever I may roam, is oh god. I mean, I was wax lyrical about how punching and punishing, looks like that fucking snare sound like a machine gun going off at the start. Chorus, brilliant, really again, one of those songs that could completely cross over into the pajamas. This song sounds as hard on daytime radio as it does in a nightclub at two in the morning. Just this fucking unbelievable, effervescent version of Metallica songwriting. Um some I, I don't like Don't Tread on Me though.
1: Oh, I I, I enjoy it. It's groovy. Right, da, yeah. Da, 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 da. I love
0: that I mean, feel to it. I'm not a bear with it. Um and perhaps you can shine some light on this. Yeah. Now Don't Tread on Me is, is a track that I skip on, on the black album. I rarely listen to it. But from my understanding, one of the first times I heard it, I felt it seemed like a, a strange inclusion, considering the way that Metallica had like lambasted war on One. Uh, and now, oh, now, oh, now the Gadsden flag is in the corner of the album. Uh, but it yep. did seem to me like a, a strange inclusion, considering the lyrics of One, uh, perhaps you can share a sh- share a, a further light on that, that will make me understand a bit more.
1: No, I think I think I think you've got a, I think you've got a great point. I think it depends on your, your your. I think it depends on your viewpoint of Metallica's narrative perspective in writing the song. So you can take it as far as that it's a a song of patriotism. Right. You know, reference to like the Minutemen and all this sort of stuff and don't tread on me and, and like the U.S. Navy and all that sort of stuff. Or which is perhaps I think more likely is that James Hetfield, as he often did, used images and ideas from the reality that was surrounding him in terms of what was going on in the news at the time. And in 1991, the Americans were just about invading the Gulf War for the first, having the Gulf War for the first time, just about invading Saddam Hussein's Iraq. Yeah. And it was a very patriotic, patriotic time. And he's reflecting maybe ideas of self-defense and violence. Right. And using the Ameri- and using that flag and that ideology as a way to expand on the idea of self-defense or to spend on the idea of standing up for yourself and using that as a thematic sort of link rather than, i don't think it's a pro-war song i don't i think it's a because there's no actual reference to war or conflict it's jet like in armed conflict by that i mean um i think it's more of a reference to sticking up for yourself and using the ideals of don't tread on me don't um trample me over don't ignore me yeah i will fight back i won't start anything but i will absolutely finish it and it, obviously it's got overtones of patriotism because what it's in reference to but i agree with you um james has been incredibly incredibly critical of what uh, of war on one but again that was from the perspective of a soldier it wasn't a political it's not a political song um and if you listen to um fight fire with fire um, that is a song about nuclear disaster. Not positive, but also it, from the singer's perspective, it's almost like an advocation of yeah. nuclear conflict as well. So to say that Don't Try to Me is, is, is not a complete outlier lyrically for Metallica, but I actually think it's more about the ideals of standing up for yourself and using that flag as a thematic link to that rather than being pro-war in and of itself.
0: I mean, even even without the... Lyrics and the theme of the track. I'm not massive on it, uh, r- regardless. I just, I, I just thought it was. A, 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 yeah, of course. I just thought it was a strange inclusion because of uh, one, but uh, you made great points there. And maybe if I went back it because it obviously, you know, I've it, said it's a song got to skip. Maybe if I go back and listen to it again, i I'd, I'd feel differently about it now. But once we get to nothing else matters, Sam. You truly understand miss, what... Missed through the Never, mate. Did I? I did. I did miss through the never? Fucking hell. Mate, and that opening, that opening guitar riff as well from James. Do, 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 do. It's so fucking mm. brutal. I have missed, i have missed through the never. Mate, um, I, I remember when I was working at a game. Again, this is before I got into Metallica. I remember seeing a, I remember a DVD, a uh, Blu-ray order came in. And I picked up a box of these DVDs, a massive amount that had been sent in. I opened it up and it was Metallica through the never. And I was like, what the fuck's this? You know, Metallica make a film out of a song. Of course they do. <laughs> just, just never, ever satisfied. Always chasing the fir- to be the first band to do something unusual. Um, mate, I-, I think through the never is underrated either. So yeah, it's actually my least favourite song on the album. Is it?
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, I, the, 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 the chorus never really compelled me. I, I, the riff's all right. Uh, it's their closest to a thrash song, but I don't think in and of itself. I think it, feel, it feels tokenistic a little bit. Um, like, oh, this is the fast one. This is the heavy one, almost. Um, but it's, it's all right. I, I, I have absolutely no issue with the song. I actually ever quite like it. If I played it live, I wouldn't have an issue with it. Um, but, yeah, the riff is just seems legitimately simplistic. It feels like a filler for me. Um, but, again, absolutely massive song
0: and another successful example of the Metallica blueprint. I just love the way James's vocals punching throughout the... Listening, turning, through that. I think it's fucking sick. Um, and I've just realised I missed out Through the Never because, for some reason, my note for Through the Never It's underneath. My now, before nothing else matters. I'm not sure how that happened, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I I love how James punches in on uh, the chorus. I love the opening riff, and again, my first day, real days with Metallica was I pick up this delivery at work, and I see that Metallica have made a film by like named after one of their songs, um, and I know that the film isn't about the song through the never, but they called it that, and I mean, the the film is. It's, it is like a story. Actually, it clips back to a live show that Metallica are playing, isn't it? So it's like... Um, yes. So it's like dramatisation and then flicks mm-hmm. back to Metallica playing at a live show, doesn't it? If I remember correctly.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, it's really enjoyable. I find that. I, find, I, find, I really, really, really liked it. But it's, just, it's essentially a concert film with some embellishments in between them
0: p- performing and playing. So... As we now get to Sam, uh, nothing else matters. I think you you truly understand at that point what Metallica had now become this all seeing rock and roll beast constrained by nothing. Absolutely, absolutely. The fact that they
1: they even put this song out there, which again, it it's not unusual for Metallica to have written a ballad, um, but this is like, but people have this at their wedding, yeah, and like you know walk down the aisle to this sort of thing and. Like it's 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 much 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 softer than anything else I've ever written, um before really since um to be fair um and <laughs> there's the 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 inclusion of Michael Kamen on sort of doing on some synths and some orchestral noises was also another big leap for the band, um which you can't really hear that much of. on the original yeah no yeah I I, I but, read into this yeah but for the band it's like. Still <laughs> felt like a massive, massive leap that I thought they were going to have the piss taken out of them or anything like that. There, is a, there was a different version that the band made without drums uh, with essentially it's just James, the acoustic guitar and Michael Kamen's orchestral bits. And they recorded that and they call it the lift version because it sounds like stuff you'd hear on an elevator. Um, and they sent Michael Kamen that like a couple of years later because he was like... Loved working with you fellas, but um, I don't think you can even tell that I'm in there. So they were like, oh, no, no, we love your bits. We love your bits, look. We made this version that we could listen to privately. <laughs> 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 there you go. <laughs> so no one shouts at us. Here you go. Um, and then he has that, and then obviously proceeded them working together on s and um, So that's a, that's a nice little wrinkle for later on. But, yeah, I think, I think the story of this is, 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 is one of my favourite stories about the album, how James essentially wrote this on accident yeah Uh, he was on the phone he's flicking around because it's it's an open open picking you don't have to actually put your fingers anywhere to play the introduction to this it's a great song to learn to begin with and it just gets gradually more complex afterwards um and then obviously started adding bits to it and turned it into this just gorgeous um work of classic guitar it is it is just on its own just a beautiful piece of guitar um and then obviously kicks into it and The lyrics are romantic and beautiful and really affectionate and heartfelt and all the adjectives that you would have not associated with James Hetfield at all ever, Um, writing about a girlfriend he had back at home and missing her and all all this sort of stuff, Um, which is a side to Metallica you never think of. You just assume they're having the best time ever on tour all the time. Yeah, um, but obviously, if you've got like a relationship to to think about, and in the like la- the early nineties, it's not like you can you know you can email or FaceTime or whatever in, in the ease that you can now. So it really was like real distance. So you can kind of feel for it. And I also love that it's one of the only recorded songs ever where James Hetfield plays a guitar solo, and it's one yeah. of my favourite guitar solos of all time. Yeah. It's slow and powerful, and the way that it builds up to that is just beautiful goes back to that classic guitar at the start because again it's a it's a soft song but it still has maintained some of its rock sensibilities and the way that they've played about with it live and sometimes they play it with drums and sometimes they play it without drums and and sometimes um i used to be how james would start it off but now kirk plays this like introductory sort of guitar stuff before getting into the actual riff himself and but it's still just transcended Again, it's just as much as Enter Sandman is a live staple. And the way they fade that into Enter Sandman Live now, I think is superb. Yeah, beautiful. The, the way those two things together. If you listen to versions of this on S&M and S&M 2, they're both just utterly gorgeous um, because there is a real classical feel to the album. Because obviously it's soft, but I think if you just see it as this is Metallica's pussy song, then I think you're, you're, you're so missing the point about yeah. how complex and dexterous and beautiful. And, and it really, really is. Because it is just, it's just a gorgeous piece of music, and I agree. Hey, they've transcended um, rock at this point because this is, its like a work of classical guitar mixing with the the ballady elements. And I think again, they're just superb from start to finish.
0: I will say, Sam, that after nothing else matters apart from the God that failed, I'm kind of out uh, on this <laughs> album. Uh, I'm yeah. not massive on of Wolf and Man. I'm less massive on My Friend of Misery, uh, and I'm somewhere in the middle on The Struggle With Him. Uh, I I do like The God That Failed. Um, I think that's probably the song that, for me, is most reminiscent of Sad But True in terms of structure, uh, especially how they call it back in for the final verse as well. It's got a really sick, uh, beautiful solo. Do you remember the play at the Etihad? We were like, the kind of fucking god that failed?" Uh, that was cool, man. Like, I, 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 was, I remember being really, really shocked that they played that. Uh, they do that, don't they? Metallica. There'll be like yeah, a point. will be like, there'll be like two songs in a set where it's literally anyone's guess what it could be. Remember when we mm-hmm. saw them in Birmingham? Uh, it was the shortest straw. That they just yes. ran, they, they they were jammy and then they dropped into the shortest drawer and now where uh, they, they do that and I, I remember seeing the God That Failed was really awesome and was it frantic that they played as well?
1: It's an anger. St an anger the that they
0: played. Yeah, yeah.
1: I, I um, saw I saw them play frantic in eight though as well. So that they they have that tendency.
0: Yeah, um, but back to um, uh, the God That Failed. I, I like it. Um, I love the structure. Heavy when they called it back in verse. It, it's beautiful. Wicked solo, but after that point, uh, the that, that's where I, I kind of like tail off on this record. Um, first five songs just monstrous and brilliant and uh, simplistic yet punishing, and then you've got through the never, which I like, nothing else matters, beautiful, transcendent. But but after that, um, after that, for me, after song eight is. What stops this album from ever being considered Metallica's best, for my in my opinion.
1: Yeah, I think there's um the thing is, yeah, it's 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 a byproduct of the nature of the album, how that at this point on previous Metallica albums you'd get like amazing instrumentals or something, or like a thrash song, or like, you know, like you get to like track seven, track eight of Master of Puppets, and it's Orion and Damage Incorporated. Because that's just the, you know what I mean? And like on Dyer's, uh, you get Dyer's Eve and Unjustice for All. Because they're not doing that. The mid-tempo filler tunes on the Black album, are a bit lower in quality, aren't they? I like the struggle within. Uh, I think it's all right. I, I like the God that failed. I think the bass introduction on that is beautiful. Apparently, there's a version of it when they originally the the Jason Newstead's introduction is several minutes long. Glad that, glad they cut that down. Um <laughs> Uh, but he, he he does versions a bit live um, that they do as part of their bass solo and things like that. So he still gets his dudes, which is cool. Uh, and a nice nod that the album after the Injustice for All Debacle has a bass introduction. Yeah. Um, almost feels like that's where Jason really became accepted as a real member of the band uh, during this period of time. where He's actually contributed something to the writing process as well and yeah. they've actually included it and stuff. Um, so good for them and good for him. Um, yeah, but I think at that point it's it's moments rather than songs. Like, a, like a riff here, a, a drum fill there, and obviously, it does tail off a little bit. But really, um, this album has Enter Sandman, Sad But True, Unforgiven, Wherever I'm Around, and Nothing else Matters on it. Oh, so, kind of good. You've got your value of money, yeah, uh, value for money at that point, really, in terms of um, transcendent rock and metal songs. So, everything after that is absolutely fine. I think most people, especially with the people that bought the album, most people stop listening to it after nothing else matters anyway. I think that's possibly, just the nature of the album, possibly. Yeah. Um, and obviously Metallica rarely play any of the other songs off the Black album at any point. Of Wolf of Man is an exception. I played that a couple of times, which I quite like. I like it just for the simplicity of the intro, uh, 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 and then the <laughs> drum fill at the top. I
0: mean,
1: I mean on that, I know it probably wasn't the best noise to make on a podcast, but you get the point. I'm trying to. Um trying to come across there, um sort of Angry Marge Simpson vibes. Um but um yeah, I think I think it's just superb from start to finish. And again, the moment this album came out, they did a couple of things that 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 really sort of set them apart. They did the massive tours and the way they did the tours, they introduced the snake pit, that little triangle in front of the stage where competition yeah. winners and all that sort of stuff. So they create this extra level of excitement around their own shows. They played massive, massive arenas. Um, Long, long set lists. Brought out live albums, uh, 93 Live Binge and Purge, to encapsulate that, which is, again, like me, if you listen to Metallica's The Black Album, you really like it. And then you just like Master Puppets and enjoy that. I would advise your next step should be buying Live Binge and Purge because you get a full live set and then the Seattle show and the, the Mexico City show. It's the perfect introduction to the Peak of Metallica, that live beast that they put together, and then they just toured it to death, and turned them into um, the Metallica that we now know, where they became a corporate band, they became just as much of a business as they did a band, and that's where they, the Black Album, led them to transcend not just musically, Black Album trans, led them to transcend the Big Four and metal in general. Um, because prior to the Black Album it was Iron Maiden and Guns N' Roses and then a big gap and then a bit of Metallica and then a big gap and everybody else Metallica joined that trio at the top and then actually as Guns N' Roses fell off it just became Maiden and Guns N' Roses Uh, Maiden and Metallica sorry Um, and this album allowed them to transcend upwards into that and obviously we've spoken about the longevity of this album and the influence of this album um, bringing new faces into metal Year on year on year, people will say, Well, you know, no one sounds like the black album, so how did it influence? Doesn't matter. The amount of people that would have got into metal because of the black album and then became metal fans and then started metal bands goes into the millions, I imagine, at this point. Yeah, um, that a whole generation of people from the 90s to now would have heard of Metallica, got into metal, started writing riffs, and then branched off into what their favorite branch of metal became. But often, it always started here. It is the most professional sounding Metallica album ever, but also the most easily introducible and easily accessible and most successful and best mixed and genre changing as a result of this. Because again, if Metallica don't bring out the Black Album, everyone just looks at grunge and thinks, oh, well metal's dead then and everything just dies. Great point. Uh, Metallica gave metal a, a lifeline. A way to transcend, a way to survive, a way to keep metal fans still invested in metal um, and keep pulling them in, and essentially a whole generation of people that were going to see other bands because they might have told them they sound a bit like Metallica, because that would be a massive pull. After 1991, was yeah. just enough. Was just enough. That's how big they are. That they they Metallica pulled up metal Metalbites bootstraps for the next three or four years, pretty much on its own. Until then, obviously, Grunge died in 94. And then we had enough space and time to be able to do things like new metal and, and thrash metal returned again. And, and even bands that were coming out and trying to write stuff that was like a reaction to Metallica, like Pantera, they were trying to be like, we wanted to be like Metallica when they were heavy, but for this generation. Well, if it wasn't for Metallica, you wouldn't have that mindset. And it, all these sort of things coalesced together, which is why the Black Album is maybe not the most popular metal album because of its success but success always breeds uh, resentment and enignomy and, and, and anyway. But it's absolutely, obviously, a, the, one, of the, one of the most important metal albums and heavy metal albums and rock albums to ever be
0: written. Ever be written. Not just for them, but for all of us. Metallica's first album at this point and never since. And Metallica done an album with, a, with no song more um, longer than seven minutes. Um, and I think that is... A really salient point about this album because it's like they wrote this album for me, for 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 the, the metal fan that's like me that I said, I said to you literally last week, Sam, that if I'm gonna listen to a song that's longer than seven minutes, it better be Metallica or Periphery that's writing it. <laughs> Otherwise the chances are I'm falling out after after six and a half minutes. Um and cries in Prague, <laughs> and there's not a song on this album longer than seven minutes. Um, and I think that outside of the last four songs, this is you know the isolation of metal never gets better than this, in my opinion. That this the, the the idea of the crossover album never gets past this. But especially the first five songs and then you chuck fucking nothing else matters in there as well. And, and what, what else more can we say about this album? We've, we've absolutely, we've gone over almost every single point that we possibly can. Um, and again, um, I don't think it can ever be overlooked. Um, the importance of Bob rock here. I know that towards the end of Bob rock's tenure with Metallica had it, it become uh, there was like petitions going rain wasn't there to that the, for them to never do another record with him and that kind of thing uh reload and reload aren't great uh if if they were to combine that into one album me and you've said this before then it would then it would be a great album say i've
1: even written album track listings where it is one album and just sat and stared at
0: it and <laughs> uh saint angat <sighs> Really not for me. I, I, I really don't enjoy Santana. There are some people that are like, well, actually, that was the first Metallica album I really liked, uh, and some people it's kind of like um, their album that they go to for the obscurity because no one else really likes it, but they find some kind of joy in it. So come the end, Bob Rock's tenure, you know, was kind of forcibly over. However, here he gave a completely New life to this band. And that's not to say that they wouldn't have had a great, uh, uh, the band wouldn't have had a great life regardless without him, absolutely would have. I still think they'd be playing arenas to this day if they'd have stuck on the And Justice for All style. But with this, this puts them in stadiums anywhere in the world. Under normal circumstances, in terms of no, vi- no virus, Metallica announced a stadium show in any country that they could feasibly get to and it will sell out. Or it will at least be 80% full. And when you, when you get to countries like Australia, US, UK, France, Germany, they can do a stadium tours <laughs> and 80% of the tickets at least will sell out. And that's what this album did for them. Completely agreed, mate. It's transcendent. Can we finish off this episode, Sam, with mm. a brand new album. Cole G's new record, or debut record, I should say, "Paradise" out on September fourth via E One Slash Inside Job Records. Uh, I would have liked a bit more time with this record, uh, but I only got to run through it twice today due to uh, you, mainly Sam. Actually, this weekend on Saturday night, oh, no. on Saturday night, my, my plan was to play golf Sunday morning with my dad. Um, Go. Out, obviously, I've gone out Saturday night with you and Leon, but I was going to leave at twelve, so I got a full night's sleep before golf. So I felt all right to <laughs> golf, and then I'll come home. I listen to the album a lot. Like, I usually albums that I'm with you. I like to listen to four four times at least, and then maybe another couple of times just so um, I can really like sit with it and get a real like clear idea in my head. Um, but because you forced me to stay out, you heathen.
1: Uh, yeah, so, told you to the chair, didn't I?
0: Because <laughs> you say till the early hours of Saturday morning, after I came back from golf on Sunday, I, I felt... Terrible, uh, and I was really <laughs> <laughs> and I I, 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 I couldn't oh. I couldn't I couldn't possibly listen to an album and try and formulate ideas from it. I was like, oh, I feel like shit. I'm hungover to fuck. I'm just gonna chill for the rest of the day. And I needed to get the platinum on Alien Isolation as well. Um, oh so, yeah, yeah. That was ten percent of your thought process. Yeah. No, no. But that that didn't. T- it only took me like an hour or two. mate I felt like shit yesterday. It was all. Oh, it was a terrible day in my life. And, and golf was shit as well mate, I was a, was a terrible state you vile vile bastard I want um, you to know I woke up at midday and felt fine <laughs> you fuck anyway uh, cold years paradise uh, Sam you know what mate Uh yep. I've never done this on the podcast before what do you think I I think of this <laughs> for a second I was like what do you mean that's my opinion <laughs> <laughs> well, what's happened Um, you just cutting out
1: everything I've ever said on every podcast um <laughs> I uh, I think you really like this because um, it sounds a bit like the Menzingers to me, and I think you should be
0: well in. If you're not, I'll be disappointed, actually. Mate, I think this is fucking great. Yes! So do I! <laughs> Mate, I, I think this is fucking brilliant. I like this album so much that 25 minutes before we came on, I bought it. I I pre-ordered. I pre-ordered the vinyl um, from the Cold Year store. I think this Good is for qu- you, Chris. Dude, I think this is great. Um, it's this album. It's like a depiction of modern life, modern life for our current generation, but from the vi- the visor of Aberdeen in Scotland, uh, which I was reading the press notes. <laughs> Do bear me that? The vocals refers to as a shithole and definitely not a paradise. So. So I kind of like the sarcasm and wit in calling the record uh, paradise. Um, Sam, I adored Hello XR by the Menzingers last year. I gave my album of the year. I adore the Menzingers full stop. I really like the Gaslight Anthem. So for this, for me, the second I figured out what this album was, I was like, "Well, I'm fucking all in here. This this is going to be a real real highlight of my year." This. I remember on Saturday night when I was talking about what we're going to be uh, doing on this episode, you mentioning that you'd reviewed an EP for Cold Years of years ago, and I searched that's heaven, right. I searched heaven and earth on the internet, Sam, to find this review. But well, I think it was on the old Noise blog site that has now been yeah, deleted. Right, yeah. That got deleted once we moved into a full website space. So obviously, I couldn't get hold of it. Uh, just before we get into your thoughts on Paradise, did you like that EP? I'm assuming you did if it was like this.
1: Yeah, I did. I, I thought this band had loads of potential and it's nice to hear that they appear to have, you know, matched up to some of that. I think, oh. it's, I
0: think this is great. Really, um, really good. Mate, I, I, I am going to be sharing about this. I think it, it's... It's just perfect for, for me, isn't it? This album. I mean, the way it comes bursting out the blocks with 31, beautiful acoustic, Springsteen like opening, explodes into this really charismatic, gaslight anthem esque rock tune. And mate, and then the picturesque start to this album is absolutely fucking brilliant. 31, then you've got Life with a View and Night Like This to tell these really fascinating stories of modern life. And I love getting drawn into these really kind of musical life tales, like High School Friend on Hello Exile by the Menzingers. Mm. And I think this is one of those records that you'd you'd want to listen to it with the top of your convertible down driving through Route 66, as much as you'd want to listen to it alone in your room, letting yourself sink into the, the thematic idea of it. Do you know what I mean by that? Yeah, absolutely. It's it's uh, you. You want to be immersed into the ideas of the song, absolutely. Vocalist Ross Gordon has got this really brilliant, charismatic voice, uh, which accentuates this album's theme so well. Uh, most specifically on his, his closing wails of "We've been here before" on the end of Waits. just gorgeous. Uh, he croons across "Breathe" in this kind of punk meets Charlie Simpson style, and. And obviously people draw lines to the Gaslight anthem and the Menzingers and Springsteen comparisons here. But I, I, I do think that Cold Years, quite often on this album, they do differentiate themselves from the pack where they can, don't they?
1: Yeah, I think so. I think as well the fact that they are saying British helps that massively. Yeah. There's, there's a Scottish twang to his voice. Yeah. That, By the way, Chris, I actually enjoy on this version... So yeah, so it's probably just Biffy's problem, but um, but, <laughs> <It's wild. laughs> um, but now there's what I want to say about this um is that there is so much heart and personality and courage yeah in some of the songs in this. There's a real roughness. This out al- this album jumps out the gate um just wonderfully. I think the first song is my favourite song. I think Thirty One is beautiful. Yeah, it's it's, brilliant. it's uh, searching and yearning and desperate and. Has this punk rock, um, rock and roll guitar underlay underneath, but his voice is beautiful. This is um, a nice combination of a lot of bands that I really, really like. I get Dropkick Murphys vibes. I get um, Gaslight Anthem vibes. Um, it's not Spring, it's Springsteen esque in terms of the lyrical content, where it's like I want to break out of my home and my heart, and I want to move on and all this sort of stuff, like breaking out for freedom and independence. But it's not Springsteen in terms of the style because it's still times that British sort of feel to it. Um but I I agree with you. I think this is terrific. I think I think songs like Breathe on this are just superb. Um there's a real pop sensibility to it but in the right places where it doesn't feel overlide. But there's also a punk aggression that doesn't feel too aggressive and obscure. Yeah. Um, it's anthemic and intelligent but at the same time it doesn't feel um like I'm being patronized or bit anything too cliche. It's a really, really enjoyable blend and I am delighted this band have got this opportunity. I am a big
0: fan. Mate, I mean, I'm listening to this album. It's got this real, like you said, personality and zest to me. And it's got these really uplifting choruses. And then I listened to fucking Burn the House there, and there's a solo on it as well. And I'm like, yeah. fucking hell, this album does everything I could possibly... Yeah. All Elements know- a piano as well on various bits of the songs as well. Really nice. All in there is a fucking breakdown, and this has literally done everything an <laughs> album could ever do. Yeah. Um, the, this album like focuses on these classic rock meets metal tropes, but doesn't make the, the album about nothing else but that. Uh, Electricity's got this really teasing... B- big pop chorus surrounded mm-hmm. by like these bouncing guitar layers. Uh, this vibe of amped up Scottish The Wonder Years is brilliant and absolutely so for me. Um, it's really important for albums like this to have character and this album has character just seeping out of every pore of its skin. The, yes. the, I, I think that's if you said to me uh, you can use one word to, to, to describe this album I would use the old Brendan Rogers character. Um, fucking, it, it, it's everywhere, all over this album. And you compare this to the absolute dross that You Meet Six are putting out, and they're in two completely different worlds, aren't they? You compare like this version of rock to like what You Meet Six are doing now. They're just they're just so far apart.
1: Yeah, um, this is what You Meet Six maybe have attempted to do a couple of times, um, but this isn't something that you can write um, artificially. You know these are not these, these types of songs with these sort of lyrical ideas, um, this this level of, of aggression and heart and courage and all this sort of stuff that just seems to be seeping out of this. You can't create that that has to be developed, and that has to be born out of where you come from and stuff and I, I, it's going to sound a little bit um i don't know overly critical perhaps, but it doesn't surprise me that a, a band like you me at six that are. A little posher than the cold yeah, years. Yeah, I see. A little assume. bit more like Southern England. Yeah. Can't replicate the roughness and the style of songs like this, where these lads have gone up in the streets of Aberdeen and there's a, there's a, there's a natural harshness of their lives that they're replicating here. So I've got no problem with Yumi at six, but I don't think the experiences match up and I don't think that natural grit just exists. You can't, you can't create that. You're born with that. Will you grow into that? And I think that's the difference here.
0: There's nothing new to cold years writing structure, really. You know, often your mid-tempo oh, no. your mid-tempo verses give way to soaring choruses, there's wo big electric guitars, Ross Gordon is you know, very much the centrepiece, but it's all done to such a high standard, that even though, yes, you've heard it before, it doesn't make it any less great. Uh, And, you know, songs like Northern Blues, so easy to relate to. to. You've got this, you know, I love the croons at the end, you know, don't you worry, we'll get out of here soon. Really, again, really great imagery and telling you a a real story, which again, I love. Um, And then you've got like, Burn the House Electricity, a bit more urgent, finally cunt, straight up rock meets punk effort. Uh, which I think fit really well in this record, mate. I, I, I fucking love this. Um, I think, like Hello XR by the Menzingers, this album, this album's great. Less lies in these working class in w- that working class lads like me can relate lyrically, and then it's got these really great backdrops that are genuinely mood lifting. Um, mate, I love this. With I, the second we come off this this show, I'm going to tell Jack Holloway. Uh, noise owner that he needs to listen to it when <laughs> yeah, he se- when he that he needs to listen to it out on september fourth and for me, I think this will at the moment this would be my top ten uh, album of the year um i I, I fucking love this it 's perfect for me what an album so good
1: yeah i i agree uh, I think it as well it's it 's punky and brash enough in ways that the Menzingers wasn 't so for me it might it might be it might be gritty enough to have the re listenability that Menzingers didn't. So I loved Menzingers in the first couple of months, but then it didn't do enough for me to keep me coming back. When I was oh no, it obviously did for yourself, but this has got like a real punk and aggression that I think will keep me interested. And I agree with you. If I if I'd have made a list
0: right now, this is this is top ten, I think top ten. Yeah. What a record and what a why to end episode 48 of the noise podcast. If you're still listening, thank you so much. Uh, we are going to be back next Tuesday. Uh, not entirely sure what I, um, what we're going to be listening to next week. So I need to have a look at what's coming. I need to choose a new breaking band and that kind of thing. Um, but, Obviously, we will still be back regardless. I'll find something to annoy you with. Um, Again, thank you so much for listening. Remember, we're sponsored by Stereo Brain Records. Give us a like and subscribe, whichever platform you are listening to us on. We will see you next Tuesday. We love you. Bye.